Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our common life, the various ways we disagree, and the people behind the positions in our public conversations. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice, and I ask them to reflect on their deepest values and let us know what they've learned about engaging across our differences. The hope is that together, we will build empathy and understanding of those from different tribes, and also just learn a bit about some interesting people. In this episode, I spoke to Sophia Smith-Gayler. Sophia is a journalist, presenter, and documentary maker. She's currently working as the BBC World Service's first ever visual journalist in faith and ethics. She's one of the first journalists in the UK to be experimenting with TikTok. So of course, we spoke about that. I asked Sophia to explain it to me. We spoke about why good religion reporting is so vital, and also why journalism and opera singing have a surprising amount in common. I hope you enjoy listening. Sophia, thank you so much for talking to me from, are you in Broadcasting House? I am right now, yes. Broadcasting House in sort of semi-empty but slowly refilling uh, Broadcasting House. I want to kick off with our big meaty question right at the top, which you have had some warning about. And as someone who covers religion, maybe isn't quite such a sort of scary word as it is for some people, I think when they land in the inbox, they think, oh my goodness, I don't even know what my associations with that word is, but maybe not. So uh, tell me what what comes up with the question, what are your sacred values or your sacred principles? What What's it set off uh, thought threads in your mind? It's so right what you've just said about the connotations of the word sacred, because that is how I approach it. For me, it is very broad. I don't necessarily tie it myself to a specific religious, social teaching, be it one I was raised with or, or one I was exposed to. When I thought about it, it was a big question. I wasn't sure how to answer it. An immediate answer didn't come to mind. And then as I pondered a little bit more, uh, this might be a bit sappy, but I think certainly the most sacred value to me is love. I think that the way I see love is probably similar or maybe comparable to the concept of love that the ancient Greeks had. They had different words for different kinds of love. It wasn't necessarily only about familial love or romantic sexual love. It was also about love of strangers, being hospitable, you know, generosity to other people. And the basic tenet really of, I would like to be, I like to treat people as I would like to be treated myself, um, whether that is, you know, by by family or, or, or by somebody I've never even met before. Um, and I think just that that basic concept of love, as basic as it is, is immensely sacred. Yeah, it's not sappy at all. <laughs> uh, please let me wind you back to uh, Little Sphere, uh, running around, maybe in pigtails, I don't know, uh, knee socks. Um, Paint me a picture of your childhood, particularly any ideas that were really formative, religious or philosophical or political or or other that you think has really kind of shaped the woman you are today. So she didn't have pigtails, but she had a fringe, very uh, distinguishing fringe. And uh, little Sophia was an only child raised in North London. Um, my mum is the daughter of Italian immigrants. Um, they moved here separately, as it were, and they met here uh, in London. My nonno was a black cab driver. 
And uh, my nonna came here when she was 20 uh, from the mountains in Italy. Nonna is the grandma. What, what did you call it? Was yes, it your granddad? Yes. So uh, nonna and nonno are grandmother and grandfather in Italian. And on my dad's side, he grew up in uh, sort of a council estate in the East London Essex borders. And he, through his drive and his graft, uh, he was the oldest of eight kids. And I think he took um, some sort of natural leadership qualities that came with that into work. And he ended up doing really well for himself. Um, And so the childhood that my parents were able to give me was very different to the childhoods that they had had. And really, you know, little Sophia was certainly very cushioned, loved and looked after. And I see myself as being raised by three people, not only my mum and dad, but my nonna. That's beautiful. Uh, I'm going to carry the picture of you with the fringe uh, into the rest of the conversation because I can't see your face because of the recording thing that we're using, which I never know if it's better or worse. Um, So I know that journalism is uh, what you're known for, but it wasn't perhaps your first passion, your first love. Tell me about music. When did that come into your life and how did that form you? Yeah, so I can't remember how old I would have been, but I think it was around 10 or 11 I had always enjoyed singing in the school choir, but that was about it. That's as far as it went. And a teacher said to my mum, oh, your daughter has natural vibrato, which is, you know, the natural uh, vibrating quality to voices that we would associate with something like the operatic world. Uh, And they said, yeah, she has something like that. Um, She should get vocal training because... Uh, certainly anyone who has sung knows that vibrato can go sort of wildly out of control and anyone who wants to pursue a life or career and that does need a lot of training. So that's what my mum and dad did. I'd, I'd already been having piano lessons. Um, I was never in love with the piano. I did it because I think there was clearly something musical in me um, and it's one of the instruments that loads of kids just start off with. Um, and that's why I played it. And then then I found singing. And that really did change my life. Um, neither of my parents musical. So I wasn't raised around music in that way. But my nonna did sing in back in Italy and always had a love of music. There would always be old Italian songs playing on her CD player. So I started having singing lessons completely fell in love with opera. Um, I was really drawn to how you had to pick up and learn several languages um, to perform opera, which is something I've carried with me. And all through my teens, I uh, trained. I did, you know, in the UK, we have uh, grades. So I did all my grades. I performed in a couple of operas. I spent a lot of time auditioning, which meant that I rapidly got used to the feeling of rejection, which is one that I'm actually really pleased I got training in for the career I have chosen now, (laughs) Uh, which equally, you know, journalism, constantly pitching, you know, everyone's desperate for a break. It's, I'm, I've found that actually I I often deal with rejection better than my peers because I'm just so used to it. Um, And I loved singing and I still do. And I was, uh, when I went to university, I kept it up. Um, at this point, I had decided to study two languages that are not opera friendly, which were Spanish and Arabic. And so already at that point, I was considering a world with wider parameters than the one classical music would give me. 
You were playing the field with your heart. Yes, I was a bit. And then, uh, you know, by the time I finished my degree, I, I just thought that um, as, as you know, there are plenty of criticisms I have of, of the world of journalism too, but certainly the world of opera um, to me still remained elitist. It wasn't as meritocratic as I wanted it to be. And I can really actually remember being in a rehearsal for Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream. I was playing Hermia. Um, I can remember being in a rehearsal and wanting to talk about something I'd seen on the news and no one was interested. They just wanted to talk about the music. They just wanted to talk about sort of who fancied who in the cast. And I wanted to talk about all those things as well, obviously, but I also wanted to talk about like what was going on in the wider world. And I think as I'm older, I realised that there is a lot of classical music that does do that, especially things being written now. But otherwise, I just found it... um, it was a smaller world than the world I wanted. Yeah. So why journalism? Why journalism? Um, so I do. I don't see opera and journalism as two sort of diametrically opposed things because both are about storytelling, and you have to do them in two very different ways. Because in opera, you are the vehicle for it. Um, it's my it's my job when I'm singing to make you laugh or cry, and I'm. It's not necessarily the, in journalism. It is more the tools that you use and how you tell it. And especially because I'm, you know, I'm in broadcasting. I have to think very technically about how I can use the medium, be it social, be it radio, be it television, to exert that emotion from someone and make them relate uh, to to the character on show. So I probably really seriously considered journalism in my third year of university. And that's when, so I did Spanish and Arabic um, at Durham. And it was in my third year that I moved to Lebanon for eight months. And it was there, I think, that um, I got a little gig at a radio station. And I started thinking that, "Mm, yes, I enjoy this. This is, this is what, this is for me. And was it also in that period, and the fact that you're in Lebanon might not be irrelevant to this, uh, that the idea of developing, you know, one of your specialisms is around religion, religion reporting. Did that, were they, did they come at the same time or was that a later development? That was a later development. Um, When the opportunity to go into religion journalism came up, I did find myself oddly prepared for it without having ever consciously prepared for it. I was raised a Roman Catholic. I, you know, I did the whole Holy Communion, confirmation stuff. I also, I I was raised Catholic because for my family, that is inextricably linked to our sense of an an Italian identity. Um, And with singing, I was, you know, every Sunday I was singing somewhere. That was usually uh, St. Peter's Italian Church in central London. And go to uni, keep singing. And obviously, if, if you are a classical singer in the UK, you constantly find yourself in, in church spaces, cathedral spaces. Then studying Arabic, uh, especially in Lebanon, where every week I was studying, I took a lesson called Islamic Civilization. You just, you simply can't learn Arabic without learning about Islam. And so when the opportunity came up, um, 
I actually had good experience of two religions and it's that's I've discovered unusual in a religion journalist I think there are far too many religion journalists not only in the UK but abroad as well who see themselves as trained or qualified when they in in simply being of one faith and that's that and for me, I, I would certainly never call myself myself an expert in Catholicism because I'm really not. Um, but I certainly have worked very hard to read voraciously around lots of faiths and never assume I'm an expert. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask you a personal question, which is hard for, it's just not very British generally, but I know it's particularly hard for journalists and also maybe for academics. So take what you will, but I'd love to hear, you know, at, at what point, if, you know, right at the beginning, did Catholicism become something that was a kind of cultural identity associated with music, the the spirituality, the practice, the sense of the presence of God? Was that ever real for you or was that um, and something that you lost or just something that that wasn't what it was about for you to begin with? The connection that I have to music, I think there is something about it that is spiritual, but I don't identify it as being Catholic. I have certainly been in the room and experienced it when I sing Ave Maria in front of Catholics. You know, that is a spiritual experience when you see the effect that the Ave Maria has. There's just something about it. Um, even in you know popular culture and cinema, the power of Ave Maria is supreme above almost all other Catholic music. Um, and when I have been on stage, my you know, the moments where I really feel like I might enter some other realm that's not quite the plane we normally dwell in, it's never been tied certainly to um, any religious social teaching. I don't know what it is. Um, I myself, you know, I, I would call myself a lapsed Catholic, essentially. I am a cultural Catholic, perhaps might be a good way of saying it, but I am a bad Catholic, but also a bad atheist. I, I, I feel something and I just don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I think many of us would struggle to put ourselves in uh, very her- hermetically sealed boxes from day to day, which is it's just good to complicate those narratives, isn't it? Um, I'd love to hear, given that you know you don't feel tribally aligned with one religion, why do you th- why do you want to report on it? Uh, it, it? I worked at the BBC for a while. My perceptions of religion coverage is that was lots that was good and lots of really good people working in it, but the broader media environment didn't necessarily take it seriously or see why it why it was important what what makes you kind of think yeah I can do this this is what I want to cover or at least part of what I want to cover I may not be tribally aligned to it but many are and many people around the globe are I always wanted I didn't know necessarily what kind of journalist I wanted to be when I first went into journalism but I knew that I wanted to use my languages and I wanted my journalism to have a global you know a world view I didn't want it to just be focused on the UK And I think there is something fascinating at looking at how people understand the world and what's going on around them and the things that we hold as as culturally and morally important, the things that are so important to us. 
um, we feel like we simply must pass them on to the next generation. The things that we sometimes feel like we must persuade others in our own lifetimes to think like us. Um, there are people who experience those emotions across, across, you know, a philosophical moral spectrum far beyond religion. You know, there are plenty of people who would like to persuade someone to their political persuasion, never mind religious. And some of those stories really hit into the centre of what it means to be human. That fascinates me. Yeah. What are the challenges with it? I think that uh, I find myself, the context of this is I find myself sort of acting as an ambassador between two camps, having had a kind of media background and a real soft spot for journalists. Often when Christians, you know, the media, the media, it's all terrible, the media, they never cover us properly. I, I sort of want to fiercely defend journalists and talk about, you know, time pressures and budget cuts and also just what news is and that telling good news stories isn't what it's there for. Of course, it focuses in on the negative and the divisiveness and the tribalism. Um, But that's not just with religion, that's with any subject that it covers. But equally, I do sometimes have this frustration about the way that lots of, um, not generally yours, religion coverage feels like it has such a focus on both the kind of institutional infighting, a very political lens on things in a way that feels very removed from the lived experience of most believers around the world, that feels like just almost something that that many of us don't recognize. How do you navigate those complexities when you're sort of thinking through what your vocation is? You know, what what is it that you're trying to do? And when do you think, yes, I've done a good job here? Sure. So I'm helped massively by the remit of my actual job, which is at the World Service. Um, My job when I got the role, which is about two years ago now, was to basically transform the religion content it puts out on digital, which before me uh, just wasn't remotely prominent. Um, And in in investing in a role and in my taking that role, uh, it's the point of investing more in religion content is to help grow our audiences. And in order to grow world service audiences, I've, I've got lots of targets to reach. One is young women, the other really is is young people in general and uh, young people and people everywhere in, in developing markets and places where we don't have as large audiences, but we see a growing market. And as a result, just like you said about how so much religion journalism centres institutional religion, you know, I simply, doing those stories isn't going to hit the audiences that, I, that I'm targeting. Um, the stories that interest the audiences that I cater for, far more lie, just like you said, in lived experiences of faith, but also the complexities of contemporary faith and what happens when a religious belief that has been written about and codified for thousands of years meets with um, a decidedly modern issue that you have to take the two, the issue and the faith, and navigate your life uh, and decide how you're going to do that and how you're going to stay true to your faith, but also stay true to yourself and sort of expressions of selfhood. I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of my journalism has looked into the fault lines between faith and female sexuality. Uh, And I come to that, I think, as a woman myself and experiencing things um, you know, in my own upbringing and things that I've seen and then things that I've read and things that my friends have told me about. 
uh, that that's the sort of journalism I'll certainly continue to do. And I think that as well as centering those more lived experiences, it's also about centering trends, religion trends. Um, it's all well and good reporting on the same kinds of stories, but if um you know, if belief in that area is in massive decline and you're also not reporting on the areas um, that are increasing. Um, for me, a particular area of interest is in the people who identify as spiritual but not religious. Um, we have to make sure we're covering them. We have to make sure that we're covering minority religions and not just, you know, the big three. Um, and t- to answer your last question of how do I know I've done a good job, because I file for things like social media and online, I see my insights and analytics straight away. But ultimately, my uh, my core aim with my job is building religious literacy. I think that um, there isn't nearly enough in the world, certainly not in the UK. That's partly down to perhaps our education system, but it's also down to religion narratives in the media not necessarily always being as nuanced as they could be uh not always looking at uh the good news as well as the bad news you know i try and do quite a few good news stories as well um if we only see stories about religious groups when the news is bad people are only going to have one very one-dimensional view of them and and it's simply inaccurate i think the coronavirus pandemic, above all, has shown how important faith communities are. Because when everything, when you feel like everything else is collapsing or everyone else is giving up on you, your faith community won't, or at least shouldn't. And those are the sort of stories I think if you center, you find the right audience and it will get to those who need it. Yeah. I uh, I have arguments with with journalist friends and academic friends because uh, of the, what, what, what Theos is trying to do, which is sort of interestingly adjacent in some ways. And I talk about it's not just like positive spin when you're telling good news stories. It's it, it's an accuracy issue. It's about actually that that you have a biased or unbalanced picture if you only do negative stories. It's not a sort of rose-tinted spectacles. This is just about creating an accurate, rigorous picture in the public conversation. So we, I think, would um, be cheerleading similar things um, in different areas. I want to talk to you about uh, about social media, about social channels, and I'm sure you've thought deeply about the way they're shaping us and the way they help or hinder us to engage with people who are different from us, whether that's religious difference, political difference, generational difference, racial, whatever it is. But first, I just want to ask you about TikTok because you are uh, very prolific on TikTok, very successful on TikTok, you know, really blazing a trail for BBC journalism on TikTok. And uh, it was interviewing you that prompted me to finally go and download the thing. And I opened it up and I'm just a, you know, classic sort of centrist dad in my 30s in that I'm a bit overwhelmed by the thing. And it's a stream of videos of people dancing and no category that you can pick, which is about ideas, which I was thinking, okay, I'll go look for similar stuff that maybe that Sophia doesn't, but there isn't a category for that. So what's good and bad about it? And why are you so committed to being on that platform? Why is it important? If you searched hashtag Christianity or hashtag Judaism or all, even I'm sure if you 
searched hashtag socialism or any other ideas, you would find plenty of ideas categories on there. Ah, that's helpful. <laughs> yes. Um, the trick with TikTok is not to treat it like a search engine. It's not built for that. YouTube is. TikTok isn't. Um, and open source investigators will also tell you it's an absolute nightmare to use as a research platform. But there, there is content and informative content on there. Um, the reason I've stayed on TikTok really is because of the audience that I've built on there. I didn't set out thinking anything would actually happen. I just thought I would make a couple of videos so I could work out how to edit video because um, editing video on TikTok happens in app. So that's the only way you're going to learn how to do it. And I just thought, well, I'm a video journalist and maybe we'll one day get on TikTok. Maybe we won't. Um, either way, I should at least figure out how it works. And then I, I just kept going viral on there. And it's, it is very addictive. And to get the response that I do get, which is immensely positive, it does encourage me to keep making it. And there aren't really any other journalists in the space doing it. I have one counterpart at CNN, Max Foster, um, but he's, you know, he's already a very established journalist. He's an on-air news anchor, very different to who I am. You know, at me, I'm at the bottom of, I'm still on the lowest rungs of my journalism career. For me, it's been an opportunity to uh, get access to a global audience and uh, be able to share my stories very rapidly with a global audience. I sorry go ahead yeah no go on so I spend a lot of time explaining why I think Twitter isn't like a ridiculous thing that should just be ignored and that we need to take social platforms seriously as one of the sites of public conversation where our common values are formed and challenged and where we learn or maybe don't learn to engage with people different from ourselves. It's not the whole of our common life, you know, but the idea that these things can be ignored or they're just, if you're interested in them, they're just trivial is uh, problematic. But I, you know, you do that classic thing of however old you are when the different types of technology come in. TikTok is a place where people are spending a huge amount of time, particularly those younger audiences, and it is incredibly short form and video based. So what works on there? And are there things that you're just encouraged to see, like examples of where the public conversation that is happening on TikTok um, can be a force for good? And then maybe we'll talk about challenges. I think that what we're certainly seeing a lot of now on TikTok, perhaps we weren't a year ago, but now on TikTok, you are seeing a lot of the kind of content that we see on YouTube when it does come to political punditry, uh, religious punditry, uh, people debating each other. Uh, people now do debates on lives on TikTok. Um, so we're seeing all of that content uh, as well. But what draws a lot of people to TikTok is relatable content. Some of that, a lot of that is funny. A lot of it is a joke that, you know, I, because of what my viewing interests are sometimes on my For You page, which is the landing kind of discovery page of TikTok, I will get uh, nonna jokes. And obviously I, I, I love them because I have a nonna and it's something that would unite any viewer from the Italian diaspora. Uh, equally, because of my viewing interests and I'm following lots and lots of different faith communities on the app, I get shown a lot of Muslim content and a lot of that is, again, relatable content around living in the Muslim Arab diaspora. Um, I would also say TikTok is 
very um it really encourages community feeling and as a result it's invited a lot of minorities and minorities within minorities to contribute and find what feels like a safe space to make video. Um, it's interesting what you said about Twitter and perhaps conversations you have about you know, tr trying to explain to people how important Twitter is. We need to think of social media and all the different apps that are available to us now, I think, as, more, as a kind of ecosystem. And the idea that if one app disappeared, it's a bit like a food chain. Um, if something disappears from the ecosystem, other things are affected by it. And the fact is, TikTok has a lot of young users who simply do not have an account on any other social media app. And TikTok has become, by virtue of it being short form video, by virtue of it having trends that encourage people to make content without having to come up with the idea for the content, which is the biggest obstacle to creating content online. Um, it's just become such a powerful arena for self-expression for a generation desperate to express themselves because they feel often so disenfranchised that if if we suddenly see that disappear, just like um, I feel like if Twitter disappeared for me or even Instagram disappeared for me, like I personally don't feel like my life would be largely affected if Facebook disappeared on me. But telling me that I might lose Twitter or Instagram or TikTok is a bit of a shock to the system. Um, and I would, I think I would feel, feel a vacuum, um, in terms of self-expression. Yeah. So I want to unpack that self-expression point because I think there's a huge generational shift in journalism, but in society more generally in terms of the world of ideas, the public conversation, this Krista Tippett uses the phrase common life, which I like because it slightly downplays the import, you know, it makes it sound a bit less like Oxbridge Debating Society, um, but, you know, the ways we interact with our fellow citizens in institutions, online, in the workplace, these things matter, right? Trust matters. Social cohesion matters. We are a diverse, constantly changing country. And for our well-being, navigating those relationships and having a sort of just setup matters. And uh, I think that the shift that has happened is a sense in which the kind of one generation back, the arbiters, let's speak about journalists particularly, felt like they were sort of largely impersonal deliverers of information. You know, one of the phrases I used to hear is, you know, take yourself out of the story. When, you, when you've got into the story, that's a problem. You know, this idea that you can be objective, you can be unbiased, you can deliver um, information to the audience in that sort of high Rethian fashion. What's happened more generally, and I think with journalism and and social journalism and, and broadcast journalism, one of the examples of that is those boundaries between the personal and the professional have got much more permeable. And the only way to reach those younger audiences, as you are demonstrating, is, is to bring something of yourself. And, you know, your channels are you singing opera and your TikToks and your very serious World Service Radio documentaries. Uh, talk to me about that, about how you think about that. Is there a cost to it? Are there times when you think that's problematic, particularly as a, a woman and the way that lots of women in the public, I get a lot of abuse for putting them, their, their personal brand in public? I'm sorry, that's a terribly framed question, but I think you'll guess what I'm getting at. It's a very big galaxy brain question. I'm not sure I've ever looked at it all in that context, but I think you are on something. I also think there's a distinction between 
print journalists and broadcasters by virtue of the different sort of regulation that we face and the fact that as a broadcaster, especially as someone working at the BBC, of course, I have to maintain editorial impartiality on all of my social media, even though my social media platforms are my personal ones. They're not BBC outlets. Um, I spoke about this actually with um, Professor Charlie Beckett at LSE, who said something really, really interesting and important to me. And it's um, a value that I now take when I continue making these TikToks. And I mean, even on Instagram, I've got 7,000 7, followers. You know, I don't actually know many other journalists necessarily with that number who aren't, you know, big telly names. Um, my social media presence uh, and, and Twitter, I've got 17,000, which isn't a ton. But again, it's more than a lot of other journalists who sort of dwell between, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 followers, maybe. Um, in all of those, in all that following that I have, I a, find it very easy to not share details of my private life. I think it's very easy to have a bit of fun without actually giving anything away um, that I feel, you know, could be compromised by being on social media. But what Charlie Beckett said to me is that he thinks... Oh, this, this is advice he gave. I'm not sure he necessarily thinks it himself, but given the loss of trust in news organisations that we've seen across the board and with the rise of fake news, um, it is worthwhile for journalists to get on board with the passion economy, is what he called it. And the passion economy at the moment is basically filled by influencers trying to sell us stuff. Increasingly, we're starting to see public figures who are perhaps activists or have a really important point or cause uh, that they're fighting for also become more apparent um, in this, this space where people talk about what's important to them and their passions. And I think hopefully what my TikToks have shown, what my Instagram shows, is that we can get on board with that and we can engage with our audiences in exactly the same space that influencers are and are doing incredibly well out of it to share our journalism, to show the behind the scenes of how we make that journalism in order to bring back some of this lost trust. I don't think I lose anything or compromise any of my journalistic standards by showing that I'm human, by showing that I'm a normal person, that I'm a normal 26-year-old with the normal anxieties and desires that 26-year-olds have. Um, and that, so far, that, that's working quite well for me. And I also think that's working well for me because I'm not a big name. Um, the people who know me are kind of from the internet. And I think sort of the trolling that you alluded to and the nastiness that a lot of female journalists can get online, I'm not getting that yet because I'm not on really or certainly not frequently, on the platforms that attract that kind of behaviour because my audiences are younger. I do really strongly believe that younger audiences, by virtue of growing up with the internet, are simply kinder to each other online. I can't tell you how much more pleasant a space TikTok comment sections are compared to Facebook ones and even Twitter ones. That doesn't mean there aren't any kind of toxic people in TikTok comment sections, 
But the ratio of nice comments, funny comments to nasty, ignorant ones has been really shocking for me. And I'm flummoxed by how different they are. And I think that the people who will poo-poo TikTok, um, especially the people in Twitter echo chambers, would actually have a lot to learn from it and the, the environment that's been nurtured on there. That's really helpful. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask a final classically interrelated and unprecise questions apparently today um, about what you've learned about engaging across differences. And so perhaps you could do uh, reflect on that around religion and explaining the importance of religion to those who wouldn't understand it, but also um, in the opposite direction, if you like. And then maybe around these kind of digital tribes and how, how we understand kind of our different preferences and temperaments better rather than always needing to just sort of disdainfully write people off. Are there any principles, practices, tools that have helped you navigating both those divides? When I cover differences, I mean, it's actually quite rare that I make a video or report about two faith communities. It's normally always centering one faith community, but perhaps the different views that exist within it. That's probably more commonly the sort of thing that I report on. Um, Before I take on any story irrelevant of the faith, irrelevant of the target language which people are speaking in it, I always assume ignorance. I always assume that I'm not the expert. I always assume that the person I am interviewing has far more to tell me about it than I could tell them. And by virtue of that, that will shape my questioning. And I think it's far more respectful. And in fact, um, I mean, I've been a journalist for three years and it's only been this year because of TikTok that I've suddenly found myself at the receiving end of questions because people want to interview me about it. And by being at the other end of being interviewed, I I do really notice when someone um, is humble in their journalism, which is the right way to be. And to, you know, if you are interviewing someone because they are an expert or because they are the knowledgeable voice from a community, for example, to, to blunder in with a line of questioning that's like, so I know this, this and this, but you saying that this is happening. Um, And I can't tell you how many interviews I've had now where um, someone has been interviewing me like that, um, when they're certainly not the age demographic that would be on TikTok, but instantly they are, um, they're being very judgmental about the subject matter, even though they know nothing about it. And, you know, I've allegedly been brought on to talk, to talk about it. And it will instantly, it certainly shuts me down straight away. And I think it would shut down any contributor. So I, in everything that I try and do in my journalism, I assume ignorance. Um, that doesn't mean I am ignorant. Um, I will read so much around it. I will consume so much information as much as I can. That information I consume is not restricted you know, to academic literature. It will be what people are talking about on YouTube, what people are TikToking about it. Um, and I try and go at it from there. Um, I find a lot of my stories online. I think that's something that um, a number of us kind of up and coming journalists are doing quite a lot is that we're going quite deep into online communities and finding stories there, which uh, these are certainly stories that exist in the real world, but 
people speak about things often more confidently online with uh, the mask of anonymity. And so you can get very interesting stories there. Um, what was your second question? It was. I think it was about a principle, and actually, I think it applies there as well. About assuming ignorance, but doing your research is a good is a good thing. But the second divide was about really these kind of different online tribes. I imagine you spend quite a lot of time internally at the BBC arguing for why uh, these social platforms are the places to engage younger audiences. So, what have you learned about how you can take people with you? Taking people with you is exactly the sort of storytelling we should be doing more of. And it's the storytelling I'm encouraged to do at the World Service. We know from audience research that people don't want to be talked down to anymore in news storytelling. People want to be guided. People don't want to be condescended to. And I do find it challenging pitching religion stories sometimes because as my editor Anna Doble said to me, the world outside MBH is far more religious than the world inside MBH. Um, And that's very BBC uh, jargon joke. But all that means is that the the, the real world, the world outside um, is very different to the echo chambers of of, of journalists. And that's not only something of my media organisation, it's something that I can confidently say about basically all media organisations in the UK. Uh, But I'm very lucky to work somewhere where religion storytelling is a protected, uh, looked after part of our remit to make sure that all voices are represented and heard, uh, religious communities and indeed non-religious communities. I find that when I'm pitching stories, what you actually need to do to convince people of its importance, its relevance and the the necessity of why this story needs to be told now is exactly um you have to do the sort of things that you would do for any story in any genre or um you know any area of reporting you have to provide data you have to provide trends you have to provide a voice that says something that utterly perhaps shakes what you thought about the subject or is, is so urgent, you can't not report on it. So if, if I, I can't go into a meeting and say, oh, I've seen this post about blah, that's interesting. No, you say, oh, I've, see, it, I've, I've noticed a number of posts about this. I've seen a growing trend because in the last year, there have been such, this many posts about it or this many people have Googled it. You know, why have Google searches around this subject exploded by 400 percent um those the data doesn't lie and the data is really what we need to go back on when we have to persuade uh whether it's an editor or the reader or the viewer why this religion story is important sophia smith gayler thank you so much for talking to me on the sacred thank you thank you so much for listening to this episode of the sacred You can find previous episodes on our website. Have a look through the back catalogue and I'm sure you'll find someone that you think sounds interesting. You can also connect with us via our social channels and we always love hearing from you. So please keep sending in your suggestions for guests or improvements. If you value what we do, the best way you can support us is by sharing, rating and reviewing the podcast, especially on iTunes, because it really helps other people find it. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos. And you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.